0: Has Alana actually transformed the value of lightning by having this intense magical experience with it? Definitely. So I would rule under my understanding of property law (laughs) as a summation of some of the cases that I've read that Alana is both the rightful owner of the sword because of... You know, the fact that she's clearly chosen, Um, but also under some versions of American
1: property law. (laughs) Get it, Alana. Keep that sword.
0: (laughs) Welcome to the Dancing Dove podcast, where Kayla and I analyze the legal and historical aspects of Tamara Pierce's Tortall novels. Today, we'll be discussing the second half of Alana, The First Adventure. So, welcome back to the Dancing Dove podcast Woo. with Samantha Yi and Kayla Zogeb. Hey, everyone! Today, <laughs> we are going to be discussing the second half of The First Adventure, um, and Our first segment, as always, is just to talk about our first impressions of the
1: book. So, Kayla, why don't you take it away? All right. Um, A lot happens in the second half of the book. Um, Some things I wasn't really expecting. For example, the entire chapter of The Black City and the end part was very interesting. Um, loved Jonathan's reaction to her being a girl love that for Jonathan um, and actually I literally cannot wait to talk about how when she gets her period for the first time she's like I gotta tell George <laughs> like <laughs> which is not really what happened but she was like who do I know who can keep a secret and in that, the whole scene where she gets her period is incredible so good so good I'm so excited to talk about that yeah But just a lot of interesting stuff. And it really does feel like this is the beginning of the book still. It's the beginning of the story. Yeah, definitely. Which you said before that she was going to make it into one big book at first, right? That's right, yeah.
0: She wrote it actually as one novel for adults. And then after several years of editing and um, some experiences that... Uh, we might discuss at some point where she was working with kids and teenagers. She decided to reorient the books to be essentially YA, and um, it was actually a genre restriction that led her to split the book into four four parts. Um, and if folks don't know, Professor Tolkien was also forced to split his great novel, The Lord of the Rings, into. Three
1: parts. Except he just um, was like, let's just keep going with the numbers of the of the pages. Because <laughs> we're just it's just one story.
0: Yeah. I think I think I don't have the letters with me at the moment, but I think there's a letter when he's talking to the publishers, Alan and Unwin, and they asked him, Can you split it into, you know, two or three parts? And he said, No, that doesn't make <laughs> any sense. There's <laughs> nothing here that is gonna be, you know, like easily split, you know, split or broken up into different pieces, but if you really insist, I guess I'll try to find some places where I can split it. And he did instead great. of doing 3, he did 6. Oh yeah. Um but yes, yeah. So that was not originally intended. But I think it's interesting. I mean, we're really going off topic now, but <laughs> I think it's interesting that that allowed the filmmakers to sort of pull the Chapters up or the the parts up Mm -hmm. to be sort of interwoven so that you're getting the different stories at the same time rather than the suspense of like waiting to find out what's going on with the other characters. Agree. Um,
1: Yeah. Anyway, back to Tamara Pierce. My other impression is that this section really focused on her journey to figure out who she is and to accept who she is. There's a lot of parts. Where characters are telling her, you know, you are who you are and you have to, like, love yourself for who you are. Yeah. And I think that that's so great and a journey that obviously every young woman goes through. Every young person. And I, I'm just sad that uh, I didn't read these when I was a kid. But I'm glad I'm reading them now. Yeah, they're they're so great. And I
0: find myself on this new read when I'm trying to read, like, with a more critical eye just truly amazed that these were written in the 80s yeah you know?
1: um,
0: it's just incredibly progressive and it just gets even more progressive in the in the coming books um, obviously I think there are some aspects of the books that you know we'll talk about probably in the feminism and gender segment where that can be read as sort of problematic right um, or can be by the way the word that I was struggling with last time retcon that's what I meant. Not retrofitted, um, but can be sort of retconned based on like what we know about
1: the world. Um, we'll fix it, it in the books, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> um, Should we do a quick recap of the plot? Yeah,
0: yeah. So in the second half of the book, Alana has successfully saved John from the sweating sickness using her incredible magical power and her connection to the gods in particular the goddess the great mother goddess and she moves on with her training in knighthood as a page and in the second half of the book I find we get a little bit more of um, that sort of like boarding school environment with the mean teacher squaw who is um, teaching the group of
1: pages how to who's like I reject this I don't want to I don't want to teach these kids is basically what he says which (laughs) I love and they're like you always say this I love that part not a promising one in the lot yeah
0: um Alana also has to deal with the challenges of growing up as a young girl and a young woman so she has her first period which is um an to discussed scene in this series and in this world and we're definitely going to dive deeper into that and then finally there's the entire chapter on the black city which as you mentioned is is, i think certainly unexpected from the reader's perspective um and there's a lot of like twists and turns Mm -hmm. as they reveal as she as the author reveals what the black city is this entire new culture that we're suddenly learning about in the Bazeer. And Jonathan's plan, Roger's plan, all of these different people's intentions. Um, But we also skipped over one other important thing that happened. Two, I would say,
1: two characters who were introduced to. Lightning and Moonlight.
0: Yes, exactly. So Alana also gains these two really important... um, Parts of her, really. Yeah, yeah, parts of who she is. Um, And she gains or discovers lightning on her trip uh, to Sir Miles' home. Which is a sword, a crystal sword. lightning is a sword. A magic crystal sword. (laughs) And uh, it's very old and very valuable, as Roger explains. And then Moonlight is the horse that George sells to her. At a very, very low price because he wishes he could just give it to her outright, (laughs) but he
1: knows she wouldn't accept it. And probably the most surprising part of, I mean, it had to be coming, but Prince Jonathan finds out that she is a girl and promises to keep her secret. George also finds out that she's a girl. So a lot of really interesting developments in these last three chapters. Big reveals. Yeah. Very, very exciting. A lot to talk about. Um,
0: so let's start with our first segment, which is Fantasyland. Um, again, that's based on the book, The Tough Guide to Fantasyland by Diana Wynne-Jones, which I highly recommend our listeners check out. It's very funny. Um, but in this segment, we talk about fantasy tropes, how they are either, um, used and how they come up in the books or how Tamara Pierce manages to disrupt them. Um, So as you mentioned, there are quite a number of fantasy tropes
1: invoked in the second half of this book. Well, uh, I think that the one to really start with is this idea of coming into herself um, and figuring out who she is and really trying to move out of what we talked about last week, which was her imposter syndrome, right? Feeling like, I'm not good enough to be here. I'm really not special, which is something that she says when when they go to Sir Miles' hometown and she, like, pulls the rock aside and she's like, come on, Miles, anyone could have done that. I'm not special. <laughs> and he's like, I've tried to do that my whole life and I couldn't do it. Um, yeah. And it's kind of like a chosen one ideology, right, that starts coming out about her. Definitely. And how Sir Miles is like, I was called to bring you here, and Prince Jonathan is, and all of the other squires are fighting over—not squires, all of the other yeah squires. Squires are fighting over her to be their squire because the... they're they're about
0: to they're about to become knights. Yeah, um, I think that's so true, and I actually I noticed that in a couple other places as well. Um, so we already know that at the beginning of the book in the first chapter, Maud had seen in the fire that Alana has this important future. And she mentions to Alana in a conversation later that she's going to have some sort of relationship with the gods. Um, And we've seen the gods touch her life multiple times, including when she helped Jonathan heal from the sweating sickness. But then the other time that I noticed it was when she goes to see Mistress Cooper, George's mom, um, who's a former priestess, I believe, of the the goddess's temple, and at the end of their chat, which we'll talk about in depth later, but at the end of their little chat, um, Mistress Cooper just briefly touches her hand. Um, I think with the intention of, you know, maybe just seeing she's got some ma- she's got the gift, she's got a connection to the goddess, just like get a sense of what's going on with Alana, and she immediately pulls her hand back as if burned, I think is the metaphor used. Mm -hmm. Um, and then says something along the lines of like, you've got a hard path to walk
1: because the goddess has her hand on you or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, and yeah, that's, that's actually the direct quote. Just to uh, flip flop them. <laughs> is this your first time reading this book? No, it is not. <laughs> uh, so what you're saying is
0: I have this book memorized. That's almost, <laughs> well al- almost. You did flip the order of the sentence. Almost, almost. Um, but yeah, so she clearly, they're they're you know the author is dropping all these signs throughout the book that Alana is special in some way that she is. The chosen one and chosen by whom specifically it appears she's chosen by this god, the great mother goddess, and that is really interesting because we haven't, um, we haven't met that god, we haven't really seen like a a physical
1: manifestation of her. Mm -hmm. And we also are there's lots of gods that are still talked about throughout the book, there's not just one kind of religion system,
0: yeah, and this is something that. I think we need to explore that further um, maybe in a later episode. I don't want to mm-hmm. talk too much about the gods that I know because I
1: am definitely going to slip up and accidentally... One of our <laughs> norms, one of our rules exactly, is that Sam can't spoil the books for me or for our listeners who are maybe reading along. For the first time. Because yeah. this is my first time. Exactly. Um, also, something interesting that about this whole chosen one ideology is that she also doesn't want it, which is another thing that happens a lot throughout these stories, right? Like Frodo saying, why is this happening to me? Harry Potter being like, why am I the chosen one? Yes, Right, throughout all different types of fantasy stories, coming of age novels especially.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that that is a trope that you want the sort of reluctant hero. And that to me reflects a particular societal value which is to be humble. And I guess the idea that um, ambition is bad and it it makes you sort of like a greedy, bad person. Um, And it's interesting to me that Alana is sort of painted as not particularly like politically savvy. Um, She's not great at understanding people. And that is actually, I, I just noticed this, um, when I was rereading this last night that when she talks about developing her relationship with miles, how she is starting to spend more time with him, she'll spend nights like playing chess with him and, and just chatting and she says something along the lines of like miles understands people and and I really don't um, And of course you know she's I think 13 at this point so it's normal for someone at that age to not have a great like you know, Social gauge, I guess. Definitely, but but certainly, I think every person falls on the spectrum of like more savvy, more quick to like uh, like make accurate judgments of character, um, and those who are less able to do that. Um, and George, I think, is presented as someone who is very savvy and has strong interpersonal, you know, skills. Um, whereas Alana is just very headstrong, she knows what's right, and she is almost confused when people don't like
1: act or think exactly the way that she does. Yeah. And I think that all of this then leads to one of the parts that I loved in the book, which is right at the end when Jonathan is like, Who should I pick? And she was like, Me, obviously. I'm and he's like, but you're a girl, which I think he said in to like get her to be like, so what? Which she does say, and she's like, even if I hadn't just defeated those nameless people in the temple, (laughs) in in the black city, then I'm still like one of the best swordsmen in our year and I'm the best archer and on and on and on. So I just really love her coming into herself. In fact, there's a line that says all at once she felt different inside her own skin. And I'm like, Yeah. yeah.
0: I love that. Get it, get it, Alana. It's so good. Um, Okay, yes, I think that that is definitely a trope that comes through quite strongly. What else, what other tropes do we see?
1: Well, there were a lot of just fun references, I thought. Obviously, we spent some time in this desert world, which just seems positively Dune-esque. Just seems, I mean, there's even a part where she's like, then there's Hills, and they're basically Dunes. And I'm like, yep, yeah, okay. <laughs> like I get it, everyone that is a fantasy writer talks about Dune at one point. Yeah. Um, the but grandfather also, of sci-fi and yes, fantasy. Yes, of course. Uh, but her crystal sword, glowing, super reference to Lord of the Rings and Sting, yeah. which is Bilbo and then Frodo's sword. Yep. Um, and you actually, I don't know if you know this, but... Tamara
0: Pierce was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. In fact, she tells a story of a teacher. I think she was in like the third or fourth grade maybe. And her teacher says, you know what? I think I know a book that you would really like. (laughs) And that's really sort of what turned around to fantasy for
1: the first time. Isn't that such a great story? Yeah, that's so sweet. Especially for two Lord of the Rings fans sitting right here. I know, (laughs) I know. And a teacher. And the idea that the sword came to her and chose her is definitely a trope, although where I recognize it most is from Harry Potter and the idea that the wand chooses the wizard. But I, it's definitely in other stories, too. De-
0: definitely. I mean, I think the concept of, like, a special magical sword that you somehow win um, reminds me oh. very much of the, yeah, the yeah. Uh, story of Arthur and Excalibur. And, yes. um And that's seen, I think, throughout fantasy stories whether mm-hmm. it's a sword or some other weapon or magical tool i mean thor and mjolnir exactly exactly and, and the, there you have the lightning connection yeah um yeah and i really like the idea that um i think the moment with lightning just going back to what we were saying about alana being kind of stubborn and not <laughs> um, not accepting necessarily other ways of viewing life um when she says, you know, it wasn't until I, like, accepted the fact that I was going to die that the sword sort of was enacted or whatever, triggered. Um, and George is shocked. He's like, you accepted something? <laughs> yeah. He says it, like, three times. Yeah. And I love, like, I think there are little moments like that with the characters that help you like understand who these characters are even though you're not really spending that much time with them i mean Mm -hmm. again i know you haven't read the later books but i am always really shocked when i come back to read these at how quickly things move um the pace is just incredible i mean in this one book that's about 200 pages she goes from being 10 to i think 14 yeah um so four years and 200 pages that's
1: Incredibly fast. That's like when you read the letter from Tom and he's like, can't believe I haven't seen you in three years. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Yeah. We're, on, we're on page 150. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, I
0: know. I know you asked for more of Tom in our last episode, yeah. but we really don't get any. And also,
1: the, the little piece of Tom that we get, he's like, I tell everyone that I'm dumb. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> My guy... <laughs>
0: what are you up to over there okay what other tropes do we have i think that those are the biggest ones oh sorry there's the last one which is going back to what you said about dune and the desert planet i think um having a like desert country with um like tribal peoples is another trope in fantasy oh for sure and and a bad one
1: yes
0: (laughs) definitely a bad one um and and this is something I actually have seen written about um with regards to the Tamara Pierce books and I think you know we'll talk more about the Bazir, Bazir. I don't know which way you pronounce it. I'll ask the Facebook group. Um, which, oh, by the way, okay, quick aside that the Facebook group came through as always, and it is <laughs> Rallin, not Raylon. Um, and specifically, they said it's like the word
1: Talon with an R. So thank you very much to the members. Of- Are you sure they didn't mean Talon? You know, the very <laughs> famous word. I'm
0: pretty sure
1: (laughs) that that's not what they meant. And in fact, the way that they deduced the
0: pronunciation was from the audiobooks, which I think is probably the most uh, authoritative
1: source that we've got Yeah,
0: um, beyond the pronunciation guide.
1: But definitely we are going to spend, I think, quite some time talking about Bazir, which is, I think, how we're going to say it in this pod. Yes. That's how I've (laughs) said
0: it in my head to myself. So that's how I'm going to say it. There we go. Um, headcanon.
1: (laughs) I think that's a good place to move on. In fact. Perfect. To our next segment, which is in Sir Miles's study, where we explore historical themes and different facts that relate to the story at large. So here we go. We're journeying into Sir Miles's study. So I think we should start with Bazir, And think about throughout history, unfortunately, there have been tons of times where white people and white colonies, white colonists, colonize other lands, and particularly lands where the people are not white, right? So, I mean, England basically had control of 90% of the world at one point, a lot of Africa, a lot of India, and then, obviously, the United States, which was at once inhabited by entirely indigenous peoples. And I think that there's two ways to kind of look at Azir, which is you can either think of them, they are either a an allusion to Middle Eastern countries and the way that they're portrayed as like desert planets, or you can think of them as indigenous peoples. Or, I mean, really, they're kind of a, a mix of both. I hope that we'll learn more about them and that this wasn't the, first, the only time we'll see them. But it really did remind me of both of those situations, especially the idea that they were colonized and that there were these kind of moments where they said things like the king said, you can either join us in this treaty or he killed them, he slaughtered them, is in fact what it said in the story which yeah. is all too common throughout history, specifically with the larger countries that I mentioned.
0: So actually, I just want to take a brief moment um, to say, to sort of frame this under, I'm, I'm sorry to make so many references to Tolkien, but I can't help it. <laughs> um, I, I It's been a lot like of time.
1: five, six, <laughs> seven.
0: I've spent a lot of time with his... Work And I, I really appreciate the way that he thinks about or thought about fantasy. And he has a really famous essay called On Fairy Stories, which I highly recommend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really, really good and funny. But um, in it, he talks about, and in, in other places as well, he talks about this idea of applicability. So a lot of folks would um, say about his work, that it reminded them of, for example, World War II or other historical examples. And he was always kind of annoyed when people, especially when they used the word allegory, because in his opinion, a work of fiction, unlike what his good friend and co-Inklings member C.S. Lewis was trying to do, he thought a good work of fiction should be applicable to any situation Whether it's in world history or something that's coming that hasn't happened yet. So, in his opinion, like if you write a story that is a direct allegory to World War II, for example, then it doesn't really have a lot of worth moving forward. Um, He also thought that that's just not really possible. Like, there are just so many trends and patterns in history and in human behavior that even if you have a particular instance in mind, it's going to end up being applicable Mm -hmm. in other scenarios. So um, that's how I like to approach fantasy. And I think it's exactly what you just said, which is the Bezir have elements of uh, the colonization of the Americas and of the Middle Eastern region and of Africa and et cetera. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, one of the things that I think um, I like about the idea of applicability is that it allows you to talk about all of these different. Um, parts of history and um the ways that that different scenarios could unfold in the future. Yeah. Um and that's the great thing about fantasy is it helps you imagine different possibilities that maybe
1: haven't happened yet. And so, I think gives you a chance to reflect on what's happening in yeah. your own world or
0: in your exactly worldview. Exactly. So with the treaties, um it's it's not discussed at length in this book. But in Alana's sort of curiosity as they're embarking on this trip to Persepolis, she asks Miles and Lord Martin a few questions. Mm-hmm. Well, Lord Martin kind of cuts in on the conversation <laughs> with Miles, actually. Uh, I think it's mentioned briefly at the beginning of the chapter, The Black City, where mm-hmm. um, she is asking about the Bazeer, and Miles explains that although it's said that King Jasson, who is the king before the current king, it's said that he conquered the whole desert. In reality, what happened is he made treaties with some of the tribes, and with others, they actually don't recognize the king at all. So there are some areas of the Great Southern Desert where Tortalan people would not actually be safe. Um, and in fact, they're technically still warring with those tribes. Mm -hmm. We don't get much more information than that, but, um, that does remind me of a lot of different scenarios in history, but certainly I think for relationships between Europeans and Native Americans, um, you know, pre-formation of the United States.
1: Yeah. I would say even post, I mean, the most treaties that were formed were really in the 1800s with Native Americans. I think because there's something to be said about how American leaders viewed themselves and how they believed themselves to be different than their previous king, right? And the English, they were like, we're not them, like we believe in freedom and independence. And we're actually just colonizing all the way out, out West because that's what God did, right? Like that's manifest destiny for us. Um, So they continued as they pushed out West, they continued to make treaties with Native American tribes and say things like, all right, um, we're going to take this part of the land, but we're going to give you this money and you're going to move here. And then they would come back in a few years and be like, actually, we're going to take this part and you're going to move here. And there were more than one, there was more than one instance where the Native Americans were pushed somewhere and then. There was gold in the Mm -hmm. area where the Native Americans were supposed to live. So then they were like, okay, actually, nope, sorry, you have to move again. And a lot of times Native American tribes leaders would fight back. And sometimes they took it up to the Supreme Court. Sometimes they didn't. And other times they tried to pit different Native American tribes against each other to say, okay, well, we'll give you the better deal if you turn on Mm -hmm. your fellow Native Americans right? And this is most famously, was most famously done by Andrew Jackson, who then created the Indian Removal Act for the Native American tribes who refused to leave and led to the death of so many Native Americans and the the erasure of a lot of culture. And later in the 1800s, they actually decided, okay, we're not going to just recognize individual tribes of native americans anymore they're just like one group really and that's when yeah and that's when they also started to say like all right well now we're gonna send native americans to boarding schools and they're gonna assimilate and become american and we're gonna steal them from their parents and just make them what we want them to be And they disguised it as the idea of like, we're doing this for their own benefit. Like we want them to be more American. We want them to be able to have jobs and do the things that we do, which is a really sad story. And the colonization of America led to the death of 90% of all Native Americans moving forward. Wow. And even to this day, like you said, there are some examples of times when the government has said, like, oh, sorry that we went back on this treaty. Here's money that we're going to give you. And a lot of times the Native American tribes are like, the money is not what we want. Yeah. We took our land. Right. Well, actually,
0: I wanted to mention um, in my property class last year, which I feel like I have a little tiny bit more authority on property law than I do criminal law because I'm serving <laughs> as a teaching assistant this spring, but still do not treat this as expert knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we did read this case called Johnson v. McIntosh, which I thought was so interesting. Um, it's a case from 1823 where um, it's actually two white Americans arguing about who owns a particular plot of land. Um, but what's interesting about it is that originally they these were native lands. There was a treaty to For the lands to belong to the tribe in that area, but then it was quote unquote sold to a white, you know, European settler colonist. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the case, this is a Supreme Court case, they actually go back through to trace the history of ownership of the land. And um, the Supreme Court has a really difficult time, you know, squaring their values of like original ownership and um, the history of who owns the property with the fact that it's originally owned by the Native tribe in that area. Um, And ultimately, they kind of come to this result that doesn't make any sense to me. That Native Americans didn't have the right to convey private property, And so uh, McIntosh, the second claimant that we discussed, had superior title to Johnson who had received the land or had traced his ownership of the land to a transfer from the Native American tribe. So in other words, the court required that um, the parties recognize the treaty that was made to cede the land
1: to the federal government. Should we honor our treaty, King Louis head? Uh, do whatever you want. I'm super dead. (laughs) It's
0: from Hamilton. Great. Um, Kayla has seen Hamilton multiple times and I never got to see it in person. I did watch it on Disney Plus, but um, I'm pretty bitter about that if you can't tell.
1: Um, We won't bring it up again.
0: Yeah, sure you won't. (laughs) There's no way to verify whether these contracts and deeds were real. You know, like did... Did the um, did the indigenous person who signed this document understand what it meant? Um, did they, right.
1: s- or was there a gun to their head? yeah? Was there a gun to their was head? Was it by force? Or did they
0: sign it at all? You know, did someone just mm-hmm. make up the document? Right. So it's very difficult um, when you're relying on the, as we said last episode, a um, sort of traditional English legal doctrines when it comes to property. Uh, in a time that we know was full of horrible violence. There's also that moment where, you know, Lord Martin has um, sort of control over this area. He, he's been given the lordship. Right. But the governor of Persopolis is a member of the Bajir, which is right. the Bajir, which is something that Alana is confused about. And she asks sort of point blank. Again, you know, she says something like, I don't have tact." <laughs> going back to her yes <laughs> <laughs> like not being great at reading the room um, but in having that conversation with Ali Muktab governor of Persopolis she discovers that this is actually sort of a non-negotiable position that the Vizier basically said we need to have control of Persopolis castle and if you take that away
1: you know there will be no peace this is something we cannot give up And what he says is, Lord Martin cannot change that, although I know he has tried to. Yes, yes. It is in the treaty with the old king. I think our people would rise up if the king in the north tried to change the custom. Exactly. Which also is just, you know, says so much about, sure, they're, like, in the kingdom, but they don't feel like a part of the society at all. Exactly, exactly, yep.
0: Um, And that's, like... I think made pretty clear from
1: the beginning about the Basir people. Yeah. I also think it's interesting that all of this is set up in like four pages, pretty much, less than that even. And while the governor is talking about we're going to, we would rise up if that ever happened, um, instead of kind of saying like, because it's our land, he kind of moves on to be like, because of our story of what happens in the black city and how we have to be in charge that we, because we know the history and we know that we need to stop anything from happening between the black city and Persepolis. But yeah, uh, a few other history notes. I mentioned this before in the last episode, but the idea of a challenge to the throne is very, very common throughout English history of kings and queens, there are lots of times where it's thought that a family member killed another family member in order to get a better spot, a better position on the way to the throne, which it seems to me pretty clearly is what is happening here when uh, Roger is definitely the one who did the sickening spell, or what is it called? The the sweat, sweating, sweats, the sweating sickness. The sweating sickness. Um, although that is still a prediction because at the end when Alana's like, well, what's up with your cousin? And he's like, what? He's trying to kill me? Are you crazy? And she's like, yeah, he sent us into the Black City where we almost died. And he's <laughs> like, no, he just wanted me to get rid of those foes. He knew I could do it. Which, come on, Jonathan, get your head in the game here. But... <laughs> Uh, that's definitely something that happened, time and time again throughout history, including when one person killed his two young, I guess they were his nephews, and like said that they like went missing, but then years and years later they found their bones, yep. which is not <laughs> really that fun. And uh, another time when one brother was found, the king was found dead from a hunting accident. And then his brother was like, I don't know what happened, <laughs> but now I guess I'm the king. Uh, so yeah, I th- I found that part of it to be very compelling because it does remind me a lot of things that have actually happened in history. And uh, last episode, I was complaining about how Prince Jonathan seemed to have no princely duties. So I'm very glad that in this, he does mention sitting on his father's council. Yes. And does mention like when i'm king i want to do this because if this were a real you know feudal society in the middle ages that would be something that he was focused on a lot yeah and what everyone around him would be focused on
0: they also reference i think when she takes him to meet george for the first time that he's getting out of um the spring planting meeting or something like that
1: yeah (laughs) he's like i don't want to sit in that meeting so boring
0: Yeah, I think that that sort of hints at, you know, there's stuff happening that we're just not hearing about from, you know. of course. uh, Because this is really Alana's story, not John's story. Yeah.
1: Yes. Very true. Okay, any other history facts? Uh, I think that that about covers it for this episode. Shall we move on to our next segment? Sure. So our next segment is in Clerk
0: Hayward's office in which I provide legal analysis of the Tamara Pierce books. And I'm very happy to be on somewhat uh, safer ground in this book, (laughs) um, because again, I'm gonna talk more about property law, um, which is an area of the law that, uh, again, I've only taken one class on, but I am helping prepare to be a teaching assistant for property this spring. And so I've had to review quite a lot of the material and and in doing so, a lot of moments in this book, surprisingly so, um, reminded me of what we studied in property. So first of all, um, there are a couple of moments where we get a reference to the official sale of an item Um, and I think the most prominent is when George presents Moonlight to Alana and John accuses him of stealing the horse because it is such a beautiful wonderful perfect horse and um george shows jonathan the bill of sale which he inspects and i assume from his time you know studying at his father's knee and on the king's council he has um picked up the ability to identify the uh uh true nature of a real bill of sale and a forged one or maybe George pulled one over on John (laughs) you never know (laughs) um but the concept of having a bill of sale which is essentially a receipt uh is actually quite old and it wouldn't have been uncommon at you know the time when this is uh presumably set yes um which again would be sort of the I think the end of the dark ages Um, and there are a couple reasons for this so first you want to especially if you're moving goods from one location to another um, you want to be able to present that bill of sale to any officials who may for example uh, need to collect taxes or for some other reason verify that you purchase those goods uh, properly by the law Um, but also because sometimes um, depending on, you know, what time period we're talking about, money, the form of money has changed over time. And so if there was a purchase that was made that, you know, it was sort of impractical to um, either pay with the direct currency, um, you might actually keep a bill of sale that says, I owe this person a certain amount. And then um, that actually might be traded for other goods. Um, and that was more commonly uh, more commonly used for things like farmed you know products um, or a large number of animals. Um, so for example, like perhaps I'm a farmer and you're a rancher and you give me like a large number of, I don't know oxen or whatever. <laughs> you can tell I'm a city girl. <laughs> yeah. You give me a large number of (laughs) oxen. Cattle. Uh, Then maybe I promise you that when the harvest comes through, I'm going to give you a certain amount of grain or whatever it is that I'm growing. Um, So there are a number of ways that that would have come up. Um, And we actually see some, you know, things like bills of sale in many different cultures. Um, I've actually seen examples of bills of sale or contracts, um, from Egyptian history, which is, you know, I think like 1500 to 2000 BCE is when we've seen examples of, um, these types of documents. So they're really, really old and, and property law is, is potentially one of the oldest areas of the law, actually, which kind of makes sense, right? Because, You need some way to arbitrate, you know, who owns that thing when people fight over an object, Um, other than, you know, what may have happened also at this
1: time, which is you would just fight over it physically. And to this very day, receipts are important. For example, if, uh, you know, someone is gossiping, they'll say something like, show me the receipts. (laughs) But that's slang. That means like show me the texts, for example. That is, yes. That is slightly different <laughs> than what we're talking about right now. Um, but still related. But
0: still related. I'll, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. One other thing I wanted to mention under property law is when a lot of finds lightning and then they go back to um, the Miles' home and they're talking about what happened, she's like really shocked and sort of upset when he indicates that it belongs to her um and I remember you know reading this as a kid I always thought oh she's you know this is an extension of the sort of theme we're seeing that she's like I'm not the chosen one there's nothing special about me um and again that I think trope in a main character that you're so humble, and you know you don't want to accept gifts that you haven't earned. But this time around, when I read this moment, I couldn't think of anything except for property law, because <laughs> <laughs> because it just really is a perfect example of a an area of the law called F- finders' law. Um, so the law of finders: what happens when you find a lost object? And this is something that it comes up in. You know most people's lives uh, all every one of us probably has at some point found an item of value whether it's you know a twenty dollar bill that someone dropped on the street or last year I actually found a necklace that said Hannah and I have a really good friend named Hannah and so after giving it to the lost and found and waiting to see if anybody recognized it and it wasn't claimed I gave it to my friend Hannah and she wears it every
1: day it's a really beautiful necklace Um, just really reminds me of finders, keepers, losers, weepers. (laughs) Yeah. I would say
0: that's probably the like adage that is most commonly thought of when people, um, have situations like this, but the law on finding lost objects is actually different from locality to locality. So it changes from state to state and, and certain states it actually changes depending on where you are in the state. Um, Now, I don't have it pulled up in front of me at the moment, but I do remember last year learning New York Finder's Law and being really surprised that the um, dollar amount, the the value of an object that you find uh, above which you're supposed to report it to the police is really low. I think it was like maybe $50. So Um, are you...
1: Did you commit a crime last year? <laughs> no, <laughs> trust me. The necklace was not than $50. Um, Hannah, I hope you're not listening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Hannah, that, that necklace has sentimental value. Uh, I don't know if it has much dollar value. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so finder's law is really interesting. Um, and we read a few cases about Um, what happens when someone finds a lost object, and I wanted to mention a couple of them. To give one example, there's a case, Hannah v. Peel. This is your friend Hannah,
1: about the necklace, (laughs) isn't it?
0: (laughs) Actually, you know what? It is very similar. Um, So that's interesting. But in Hannah v. Peel, this is uh, another English case, actually, from 1945, where Peel bought a house in 1938, um, but the house remained unoccupied until the middle of 1940. Um, and at, at that time, the reason it was unoccupied by the owner is because it was actually, you know, if you think about the timing, this is the late 30s, so um, Britain had actually sort of, I don't know the word, but they commissioned the house or um, they occupied the house, really, with with British soldiers um, who were stationed in that area. So Hannah uh, was stationed at the house, and while there, he discovered a brooch, which I suppose must have had some jewels in it or something to make it more valuable. Um, But he actually handed it over to the police, and the police gave it to the homeowner, and two years later, the original owner of the brooch was not found. Now remember, that the homeowner had never moved in, so it certainly wasn't his originally. Um, Now the homeowner sold the brooch for 66 pounds, um, and then ultimately it was resold for 88 pounds, and the homeowner offered a reward, and he refused to accept and said, no, I'm not going to take your reward. I want the brooch back. It's mine. I found it. As you said, finders keepers. And this is another, another case that really surprised me because you would think, I think like the gut reaction is, well, the homeowner owns it, right? When you buy a house, you buy everything that's in it. Mm -hmm. But in this case, they actually held that because it's a lost item and they know that it didn't originally belong to the owner. He didn't you know explicitly pay for the brooch when he purchased the home um they actually ruled that it should go to hannah the soldier who found it
1: isn't that crazy (laughs) it's crazy (laughs)
0: um so again this is just another iteration of this question of whether a finder should receive an object um and there's a lot a lot more iterations of this problem like what if there are multiple finders um so what if you find an object and then you lose it and then I find an object? Who owns it between the two of us? Um, and we could go on and on. But um, I think what's interesting in the in the situation with Alana and Miles is that this is one a sword that was found on Miles's land, and very clearly, you know, an area where he has explored before and found other items, but alana has you could argue transformed or increased the value of this sword first because she found it in the first place right miles couldn't access that sort of underground staircase and tunnel but also um miles doesn't have the gift and he's not chosen in this way that the sword would have reacted when you know someone went down to find it and has Alana actually transformed the value of lightning by having this intense magical experience with it? Definitely. So, right? I would rule under my understanding of property law, <laughs> <laughs> as a summation of some of the cases that I've read, that Alana is both the rightful owner of the sword because of, you know, the fact that she's clearly chosen. Um, but also under some versions of American property law. <laughs> Get it, Alana. Keep that sword.
1: <laughs> um, okay, great. And that's really all I have for today on legal issues. All right. So our next segment, we are going to journey inside of the goddess's temple to talk about gender and feminism in these chapters. So obviously there is a lot to talk about here, and I just think we should jump straight into Womanhood, the chapter where Alana gets her period for the first time. I will say that reading it, I can remember talking to my grandma about it, and she was like, well, no one ever told me what it was. That just wasn't something that we talked about. So it really reminded me of that when Alana was like, there's something wrong with me. Like when she's like, why is this happening? And I can't talk to anyone about it. So she, and when she finds out that it's normal, I mean, George's mother is basically like laughing at her. And when she goes, when "When does it end? (laughs) And she's like, not soon. Yeah. (laughs) And she's like, what? (laughs) Devastating. (laughs) Devastating. devastating. I mean, I
0: cannot... I don't think express in this format. And I really don't know how to fully express my utter anger and sense of injustice about the fact that women have to have monthly periods. It's absolutely yeah. absurd. And oh, I should say, yeah. not just women, right? Like, um, however you identify people who have periods, it is totally unfair. It's oh, just yeah. the worst. I mean, to have these emotionally, <laughs> Physically. Financially, physically. Yes, financially. Oh my God, the pink tax. Um, it's just, yeah, it's terrible. Um, and just truly unfair. And and actually there is a long like political history, obviously about controlling women's health. Um, and I don't think we have to go into that right now. Um,
1: yeah.
0: But how amazing is it that uh, Mistress Cooper just has a little charm for birth not getting pregnant you don't have to take a pill every day you don't have to inject something into your body where is mistress
1: cooper (laughs) honestly can i get one of those yeah
0: and do they prevent period cramps because that would be amazing
1: also how funny is it when alana is like i have the gift i'll just get rid of it i'll just get rid of my period and she's like no you can't do that
0: I think that is such an interesting moment and actually gets into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is how these books, this series has been seen as a trans narrative. Um, and I think that you know there are some strengths and there are some weaknesses um, to the way that this book can be can be read that way. Um, and this is one area where it gets a little bit problematic I think throughout the series where um, oftentimes people are, I mean, you mentioned actually in the first episode that a strength of this book is the gender bending and the fact that Alana is defying the stereotypes of what a male or a female has to do. I think she does it in both directions. Um, But I think I've seen or I've heard people talk about how this can be problematic. Um, But I think the way that I read the books as a trans narrative is that, you know, Alana throughout the series identifies as female um, but she's presenting as male right so for me the way that I read the series is that um, if you're seeing it as a trans narrative that she is a trans woman right like her her true identity is that she is female um, but other people are seeing her as male, and so that's a transformation and a, a journey that she has to go through. Mm-hmm. That's really complicated. Um, so the language of people saying, you know, you're a woman, you have to accept that, be who you are. I don't think it's problematic when you read it that way, right? Um, I think it is problematic if you read it in the other direction. Right? You know, if you if you're reading Alana as a trans male then I can see some of this as being kind of hurtful right. um, to say, well, you know, you have, you, you're getting your period and you're growing your chest and you just have to accept those things. Right. Um, and I, I have read Tamara Pierce's tweet about, especially in the wake of, you know, I don't, we don't want to talk about J.K. Rowling on this podcast, but I will just say for this instance, that um, after J.K. Rowling's horrible, terrible, tweets um tamra pierce responded and said something along the lines of you know i didn't always do the best that i could i didn't do everything that i wanted to in in the early books but i'm trying and i'm learning and i'm working on it yeah. um and i think that's so important but also i think is an admission that there are elements of this first series where alana is forced by other characters or encouraged by other characters to fit into a particular mold of what it means to be a woman. Um, and so the, uh, these are just some of the examples, right? Like when her chest starts to grow and Koram says, you know, you have to accept this. Um, and I've actually seen examples of fans of the Tamara Pierce book saying that they would bind their chests growing up, and and mm-hmm. some still do. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. I think um, that those are moments in the story that can be read as hurtful, but I think maybe if we read it in the other direction, that you know, Ilana has identified and has discovered that she, you know, identifies as a woman, but is um, feeling pressure to hide that because mm-hmm. she's so afraid of the discrimination that she'll experience when she reveals right. that she is a woman. And I think that that's what you see in the scenes when she essentially comes out, right to George and John yeah. as being a woman. She's so apprehensive. She's so afraid of how they're going to react. I mean, rightfully so, because women are not treated well in
1: this society. Yeah. It's funny that that's the way that you were viewing it because I feel like the other way to view it, and maybe the one that I was thinking in my own head, was that she is a a trans man. Hmm. And so she wants to be a man. And people keep telling her that she can't be a man because she's really a woman. And I guess that that would be the example that's harmful instead. Because instead of saying, you know, they, they continue to say you can do things just as well as a man. Right. But they're not saying you can become a man or you are a man inside, which is a problematic way to view it.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: But... I, I can see the case for the other way as well and then it becomes a much more inspirational story absolutely yeah and we should say you know this isn't written
0: explicitly or canonically as a trans narrative right um, so you, I, you are going to have those tensions with right. the book when that's not how the author intended it to be read um, but I think it's so powerful um, for trans readers especially who you know don't have a lot of representation mm-hmm. in YA fantasy oh, yeah um, and again, sorry, minor minor spoiler, but there is a trans character later in the Tamara Pierce books. Um, so it's not that trans people don't exist in her right. world, um, but as you know, she said again in that tweet, and I think in some interviews, it's just a form of representation that um, she she didn't get to until later in her career when um, you know she had done more learning, and I guess you know I don't know if she put it this way, but maybe just had more courage to write about it. Um, And, of course, I think it's also just difficult to write about when you're a cis woman. Um, And so... Right, yeah, definitely. Yeah, to some degree, I I certainly think it's important to take your time with that and make sure you're doing it right. Right. Um, But I don't... I think it's so important to recognize, like, the fact that this is read as a trans narrative by so many people and has served as, like, a really powerful... Um, story for people in so many different ways, whether it's, you know, someone for you to identify with
1: or a way for you to understand that gender is fluid. Right. Because there, I was also going to say that there's so many instances where the pronouns just switch back and forth, like all the time, which I think is a really cool idea, especially if you are a young person, you've never been exposed to something like that before. Mm -hmm. The idea that a girl can dress like a boy and do what he does but also might present as male and female at different times is really powerful totally
0: yeah and again like i do feel like even that to me seems super exciting and progressive for the time when it came out um and that's not to excuse any like moments in the book that are hurtful or offensive to of course readers um but it's just i think a testament to Tamara pierce as an author that Um, She was writing this stuff when she did. Um, Okay,
1: great. So what else did we want to talk about with regards to gender? I think that we touched on a lot of the other themes, just her coming into herself and accepting that just because she's a girl doesn't mean that she can't be as strong as the boys are. And there are just so many instances throughout these chapters where she's really coming to terms with that which culminates in the moment with Jonathan where she's like, no, I should be your squire because I'm the best that there is. And just so many times in that final battle between the nameless ones who do have names, but I've literally no idea how to pronounce them. (laughs) Um, Yeah, in my head I say the deer. (laughs) Well, I think that that's as good as any thought that I had in my head. But there are so many times when they keep saying like, she's a girl, she's weak. And she's like, no, I'm a girl, but I can fight and attack as, as well as any boy. Yeah. And I think that that is really strong and really cool for her to be coming into herself. And even Quorum, there are many times throughout this, this these few chapters where he's saying, you're a woman, but you're a warrior. Like you can be both, it, you don't need to choose. Koram. What a man. <laughs> we don't... I feel like we don't have as much of him this time.
0: No, yeah.
1: Because he doesn't come with her to Persopolis. Yes. Um, or sad. with Sir Miles on that journey either.
0: Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, and that, I think, also
1: goes to the fact that, you know, she's growing as a um, character and... Right. Um, doesn't yeah. need to depend on him as much.
0: Exactly. Okay, so we are moving on now to our next segment, which is adapt or not, in which we discuss the elements of the books that we think will be adapted well or easily into a potential television show um, and those that might be challenging. Um, And the one that came to mind immediately for this second half of the book was racial casting. Um, now we there are endless examples of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the first example that comes to mind is Avatar the Last Airbender, in which you have a fictional set of characters, a fictional place, um, and the movie producers, like writers, casters, I don't know, I don't know much about the film industry, but whoever made the decision decided to oddly make the villains, like, South Asian, they're all South Asian, and then all of the main characters are white. Even though in the original cartoon, it's pretty clear that the Fire Nation, which is, like, the evil villains, are very light-skinned, and the main characters are not white. <laughs> <laughs> like, Katara very clearly has pretty dark right. skin. Yeah. Um, so... That was incredibly frustrating to me as a fan. I know it was like pretty scandalous and talked about a lot at the time that it came out.
1: Um, as it should be. It's just a clear example of racism in the movie industry. Absolutely.
0: So um, I definitely had a moment where in reading again about the bazier, I was like, oh God, I hope they don't mess this up. Um, and we talked about this a little bit last time, there's absolutely no reason to assume that the people of Tortal are white um, or even that they're all the same skin color, especially now that we've learned in the second half of the book that Tortal is really a bunch of different places with different cultures that have been cobbled together in, you know, a a series of colonial um, instances in a history that, you know, we're not super familiar with yet, but the fact that some of the pages are described as like darker skinned and darker features and some as pale and with, you know, light hair. Right. To me, that indicates that you have um, a lot of diversity of features. And um, I think even the concept of race is something that's not really, um, that doesn't really exist in in this book. It doesn't exist in this world yet to us. Um, Because even like, there's no reason... either to believe that all of the bazir look exactly the same, right? We've only right. met some of them. Um, right. And so it's more, it's just, this is a different culture or different nation, not necessarily
1: a different race. Right. Also something I just wanted to bring up really quickly is the idea of the black city, having the name, the black city. Hmm. It's not yeah. really a great look from our friend, Tamara <laughs> Pierce to have named it that. There's obviously a long-standing history of people, white people, most generally, using darker colors to denote evil or bad. Yeah. But that really was a thing that stood out to me Yeah. in reading it as in this year. Yeah.
0: I think, you know, it's interesting, speaking of the people... Peoples whose name we cannot um, describe <laughs> or cannot pronounce deer or however you say it. Um, so they are described as, uh, I'm looking for the exact, um, let's see. So she talks about their height. She talks about what they're wearing.
1: Do you remember how you imagined them? I imagine them as non-human, so... Oh, interesting. Okay. I mean, they're definitely not human. Right. But I'm trying to
0: remember if she does describe their skin color. Um, But this is another example where, you know, if they cast the Isandir as, like, a particular race, you know, as all South Asian, for example, like in right. the Avatar movies, that, to me, would be really problematic. So don't do that. TV showrunners. Um, I mean, especially for like a non-human group, there's absolutely no reason for them to be no all
1: of the same race. Um, um, I will also say that that scene will be hard to do, yeah. and it could look foolish, mm-hmm. or it could look believable and yeah. whimsical and magical enough that we understand. And we can, you know, suspend our disbelief. Or I think there's lots of examples of fantasy TV shows and movies that just don't look anywhere close to believable. Yeah. But it would be really hard.
0: Let's talk about adaptation of, um, you know, the moment when Alana gets her period and then, like, runs off.
1: Um, I think that could be so powerful.
0: Amazing, right?
1: To see on screen. But... I also can see them really messing that up. Yes. <laughs> Feels like we need to have a woman in charge.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, I was just thinking of, um, sorry to spoil, because you haven't seen The Queen's
1: Gambit, have you? That's okay. Okay,
0: for listeners who are who don't want it spoiled, it's, it's a very minor spoiler, but um, <laughs> the main character gets her period in one of the episodes, and it's just this, like, unbelievably dramatic moment where there's, like, a huge amount of blood, like going down her leg and it had to be really obvious so that this other character would notice. And I'm just like, that is not how it happens. Like how much blood do you think is coming out of us? Man who wrote this scene, you know, like, I think to me that just indicated that like, this is not people who have had their period, you know, writing this and staging this. Um So, and I think that that's true of a lot of the moments in this book when she's, like, growing a chest and all of right. these, you know, essentially, like, female growing pains... Yes. um, ...I think are so important and, like, so um, monumental for women to see themselves represented in fantasy. And I, I'm really nervous about them, you know,
1: doing it right. So... Right. Here's to hoping. I also would be nervous that they would try to push some kind of relationship aspect in which mm. I'm sure like I don't know we spend a lot of time with Alana in the books I assume moving forward so I could see that coming about as a plot point later but there's a lot of moments where I feel like they might try to push that narrative on to yeah. Alana early definitely, which I would not like I agree
0: um, you know, I was thinking about how they would, um, show that Alana is practicing her sword fighting. Yeah. Um, like, I feel like there's often a lot of, in, in TV or movies, like someone's training, you know, in the martial arts or, you know, some sort of fighting method and you just see a montage of them, like doing yes. repeated drills. <laughs> and I was kind of imagining that when I was reading it, but I think that that, um, That sort of doesn't, to me, capture what's really going on. Right. You know, like, this is actually a great demonstration of grit, you know? Yeah. Like, she is really bad at this in the beginning, and she recognizes that she's bad. She has this great mentoring conversation with Koram, and she realizes that to get good at it, she has to apply herself even harder than those who have a natural ability, and she does, you know, two extra hours a day of practice. And so for me, I almost feel like a better way to demonstrate that is the way Tamara Pierce does it in the books where she goes from being like really, really bad, (laughs) um, like a total disaster at sword fighting. And then you get a brief description of how she's like trying to do better and Mm -hmm. like all the work that she's putting in, but you don't see her actually really get good at it until the reveal when she has that moment where she fights um i think is it jeffrey or joffrey do you think? i think it's jeffrey okay we'll go with jeffrey i'm just well, so i'm confused you know. by game of thrones
1: yeah no joffrey
0: <laughs> we can't no one can be named joffrey ever again no so. oh my god um i definitely said Je- jeffrey growing up because that's yeah. familiar to me but yeah um You know, let's look it up in the pronunciation guide and be disappointed again. (laughs) Oh, it is in here. It's Jeffrey. Okay. Nice. Jeffrey of Meron. Thank
1: you very much, pronunciation guide. I'm sorry for insulting you. All right. I think that we can move on to our final part of the night of the episode, which is picking an episode winner. Yes. Okay. So who do you think should win this episode? It's it's gotta be Alana. I've I've thought about it, but I think that I think we gotta give it to our girl. She gets a sword, she gets a new horse, she learns how to fight really well and practices all the time, and she comes into her own and she kills ten <laughs> nameless ones <laughs> and probably figures out the plot from our guy Roger and she gets chosen to be prince jonathan's squire. So if you have a another person who did all of that, I did I did think about some other people, but I think that this one's got to go. Got to go to Alana. I completely agree. There's just no one else who could win this one. I did briefly consider um, Ali Muktab. Yes, <laughs> Ali Muktab because of probably my favorite quote of the entire thing so far. I am very fond of cats. At least three live in my chambers and you know, we got to give it to cat lovers. I actually wrote, I wrote in my book, love the cat shout out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Many more cats to come. So don't worry. Thank the Lord. But all right, we're going to give this episode over to the one, the only Alana of Trevond. Thank you listeners for joining us again. We will be back next time with the first half of In the
1: Hands of the Goddess. Reach out to us if you have any cool ideas for our next episodes or if we've been pronouncing anything wrong. (laughs) But yeah, we hope to hear from you and hope to see you next time.
0: As always, we are indebted to the Silverman Brothers, to Nadim for our cover art and Arif for our beautiful music, And this week, I'd like to thank all my law professors, but in particular, Professor Katrina Wyman. And as always, a big thanks to the one, the only, Tamara Pierce.